0: I Don't Get
1: It Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the I Don't Get It Podcast. First and foremost, we want to start off this podcast by saying Black Lives Matter. They matter, and they should that shouldn't be a controversial statement. With the tragic and recent innocent deaths of black people like Ahmed Aubrey, Brianna Taylor, George Floyd by police or former police officers, people in this country all over the world have been protesting paying closer attention to police brutality, and taking a hard look in the mirror, including the three of us. I'm white passing. So before we get started, I also want to acknowledge that we, and when I say we, I mean white people are white passing. I feel like are all sitting around the Thanksgiving table right now. And a lot of us are emotionally confused. We're feeling guilt, anger, embarrassment, sadness, excitement, hopefulness, helplessness. And I... We feel like it's more important than ever that we become vulnerable and practice racial humility. We are building a plane while flying it and we can't be scared to mess up because that fear in itself is a privilege. And I feel like I have to be vulnerable in this moment and tell you that that's something that I just learned. Last week, I was actually hesitant to have Robin on the podcast because she isn't black. It's not black people's job to educate us. And we can't let fear of protecting our ego, our brand, or whatever get in the way of trying to make this world a better place because this is a matter of life and death for black people. We have to work through this and educate ourselves. So today we're going to use our unearned privilege and platform by having Robin D'Angelo. She's an academic educator on whiteness studies and author of White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. She's back on the New York Times bestseller list. Her book's basically sold out. Um, And we just hope that this podcast can help all of us on our journey of educating ourselves and fighting systemic racism, because it's something that's going to require learning and listening for the rest of our lives. And we also wanted you guys to know that we will be donating our money from the sponsorship of this podcast to organizations that are funding the movement. Robin! Hi! Hi! Hi. All right, friends. We have Robin D'Angelo on the podcast. Robin, we have so much to learn. We feel so honored to have you on. Um, We found ourselves highlighting almost every page. And we wanted to preface something that you wrote in your book that this conversation isn't so much about providing the ultimate solution or proving that racism exists because it does which is why we're here this is more about how white fragility is holding racism in place and we wanted you to know that if we ask you a question or say something that is racially problematic on this podcast we want you to know that we would love feedback on it
0: thank you okay yeah To, uh, to that end uh before we start uh you know that i am white that's my racial identity uh may i ask you yours the two of I'm, us are we're white. white. Okay, so Lauren um, and Ashley, Ashley are white. and, and sisters,
1: and- Robin. I, I feel so much like comfort in you even asking this question. So I am Dominican. So I am a white Latinx female. But I've I've actually been very confused growing up in the states because I feel like I've been lumped into people of color, brown people, Latinx. Um, yet my skin is olive tone and white.
0: Well, so a couple things. Let me let me point out, why did I ask you your racial identities? And that is because it's going to shape the way I respond to you. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that will come out because listeners might be thinking right now, why would you respond differently based on their race? So- we will get into that but you also just show this is a social construct this stuff is made up mm-hmm. it's real in its consequence mm-hmm. uh, but it, it's it changes over time in some contexts you're probably responded to as white in other contexts as uh, a person of color and then there's your own internalized you know your own internalized excuse me <laughs> your own <laughs> internal identity uh, this is why this is so complex and why white people really need to have some humility about that complexity.
2: I wanted to preface the podcast by saying that like, I have been scared to pull a Megyn Kelly for like the past two weeks on all of my podcasts. I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to ask an ignorant question that I should know the answer to and then be canceled for it. I feel like these moments are what kind of increases white fragility and – because mm-hmm. it, makes it, it makes it so scary to talk about race and be vocal about it because you can see how easily people can be villainized.
0: Yes. Okay. So ignorance. So, uh, see, you just said that one thing. I have so much to say about it. Okay. <laughs> so one is how will we learn if we don't make mistakes? Okay. If you think that I am articulate and clear about about race and racism, and I want to be clear that my life, uh, my learning will never be over, but to the degree that I am, it's from countless thousands of mistakes over. 20 years. The the key is that you learn and grow from the mistakes. You don't use them to excuse your like, forget it, then I'm not going to say anything. And in my experience, those moments don't have to turn into vilification. The way that you learn, earn trust is by repairing those moments. Like I've had so many of the people of color in my life say to me, We're not going to give up on you whenever your racist conditioning Mm -hmm. surfaces. I mean, if we did that, we'd really be isolated. We need you in the struggle. What we're looking for is what happens in those moments when it surfaces. Where can we go with you? And if you use those as excuses to withdraw and disengage and abandon the relationship, we're not going to trust you. And that's the kind of stuff that escalates into these huge controversies. They could have been nipped in the bud early on if the person just owned with humility what they had done and sought to repair it rather than defend and deflect and and try to uh, minimize or deny it. Don't you feel like it's kind of a what we're living in right now is crazy because
2: people want to cancel people like this is just like some weird desire people have they love finding fault in others and then at the same yeah. time it's supposed to be an era where we are educating and making mistakes and learning from them
0: yeah i mean i get that i get it a lot that that kind of righteousness um and uh, I I don't think that's constructive at all. You know, the number one question I get, well, actually the number two question I get, the number one question is what do I do? (laughs) The number two (laughs) question that I get from a white person is how do I tell my white friends about their racism? Yeah. And when I get that question, I just look that person in the eyes and I say, well, how would I tell you about yours? Hmm. Right. Because that question always assumes it's not me. I'm True. down, I'm woke, and now I'm going to go out and righteously call everybody else in. And that's right. also a form of whiteness and arrogance. Right, It's not strategic and it's just not
2: useful. Right. You guys, we found the best drink of the entire summer. You know how last year it was all about the seltzers? This year, it's all about, yes, the name is a little bit different. It's called Ethyl Ambrosia. Ambrosia. If you want Ambrosia. to be cla- yeah. if you want to be classy. But they're classy jello shots. They're
3: jello shots and
2: really <laughs> cute champagne flutes. Yes. So and they come to your door in like this cute little package where you have all these different flavors and they they look like real fancy cocktails. Like you're at a Gatsby party. Yeah, they're yeah. vegan. And uh you get you get a little tipsy off of them because they're fifteen percent alcohol.
1: It is so honestly, this is like revolutionary and What's crazy is that one of our listeners actually made this like company, yes. which I am so here for. And it just is so amazing. But I know in quarantine, a lot of people haven't been able to celebrate their birthdays yeah. in the right way. And guys, I'm telling you, like the cool thing to do is send your friend who is celebrating a birthday, a box of Ethyl Ambrosia Jello shots. It is so fun. It makes you feel like you're like having a party. Yeah, it's really they look so pretty and classy. Yeah. yeah. If you know someone
3: having a birthday during quarantine or really any time send these little champagne jello shots and they will have so much fun and they come in so many different flavors also like
1: push pops
2: you know you push them up as you like eat them eat them drink them yeah
1: yeah their cup is actually patent pending and they're so cute they look like you guys said they look like champagne glasses and you can never you never have to use your finger or tongue to like get out the jello which i think is like revolutionary look, but the flavors, the flavors are the that's what i was going to talk about yeah so they're, there's rose mojito citrus punch which
2: is probably my favorite and moscow mule moscow mule is my favorite they it's so very good effective. I, they're in the
1: yeah. And it's female founded and owned. They ship it right to your door. All you guys have to do is order online. You can sit back and relax. See website for the states that they are currently shipping to. And I'm it is I honestly like things never blow me away you guys know this like i'm very rarely ever blown away mm-hmm. and when i got this package i was like yes i can get drunk just by eating a little piece of jello <laughs> so fun. No, i even texted
2: our neighbors i was like did you happen to get this box uh, because i kind of <laughs> wanted that i just want to see if i can get some over my parents um wait we also should mention that i said earlier it was vegan but this is like Cool because a lot of jello is not vegan because usually it's gelatin based. These aren't. These are based on three kinds of seaweed.
1: Yeah. And it's been formulated by one of the nation's top food scientists. And it just, there's really just nothing like this. And let's emphasize this is an I don't get it fan. So support
2: your I don't get iters. Okay. This is where you get it. You go to ethylambrosia.com. It is E T H Y L A M. B-R-O-S-i-A.com Ethelambrosia.com, and you guys are going to get 15 percent off, plus free shipping, it, shipping just for our listeners, um, but you need to use the promo code, which is get it at
1: checkout. 15 percent off.
2: Fantastic. Right. Fantastic. Fantastic.: Let's Check get choistty. <laughs>
1: Let's start off with the real definition of racism. And I know that racism is complex and nuanced, but I say real because while I know most of us are aware it still happens, I feel like in school we're taught about slavery in the context that racism was a thing of the past in this country, not something that's ongoing that has been swept under the rug for many years. And my biggest takeaway from your book was that we're all racist. So
0: the first thing is that while we're taught that this was in the past, I think Everybody knows that by every measure across every institution, Black and Brown people will be at the bottom. Now, how we explain that might vary, but that we all know that over and over and over, our society reproduces inequality, right? Mm-hmm. There's only two explanations for that inequality either Black and Brown people are inferior, there's something wrong with them that they're always at the bottom, and white people are superior because we're consistently at the top, or racism yeah so so really for a white person you need to ask yourself how do you make sense of that and that might connect you to some racist ideas you have that you're not really noticing but we're all taught in mainstream culture to to define a racist like this it's an individual who consciously doesn't like people based on race and is intentionally mean to them individual conscious malintent about uh, cross-race. That's a racist. Uh, You know, anything short of wearing a white hood is not a racist. And I don't know if you could have come up with a better way to protect the Mm -hmm. system of racism than that definition, because it exempts virtually everyone. Even these acts that uneducated white people, uneducated on the topic of racism, which, hold your breath, is basically every white person you know, because we're not given the education. So if you don't work hard and uh, to get that, you just are not uh, informed on this topic. Every act that the average white person would recognize as racist, Amy Cooper in the park calling the police on somebody uh, who asks her to follow the rules, every one of those act, the people who did them said, I'm not racist. So it's so no. meaningless. So- Um, every act that you could recognize as racist, the person who did that thing will tell you I'm not racist. Right, and the
1: thought right. that we are quote not racist implies no further action required of any of us. is there Absolutely. a modern
3: definition of racism because that was the definition after the civil rights, so is there yep. like an updated version of racism
0: <laughs> there, there there should be okay. uh, there certainly is for sociologists and people you know who study race, and I'm seeing it more and more in the mainstream, so I'm happy about that i mean you're you're hearing newscasters say things like systemic racism. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't think I'd ever hear that in, in my time. Here, wow. Here's my easiest definition. Absolutely everybody has racial bias. Everybody mm-hmm. has racial bias. Nas could have racial bias towards me just because I'm white. Um, I could have racial bias towards her. The difference is what happens when you back my group's bias with power with legal authority and institutional control, that transforms the impact of that bias. And the example I often use that maybe your listeners would relate to is uh, we're talking about racism right now, but there are other forms of oppression. Sexism Mm -hmm. is a form of oppression. Mm -hmm. Um, Women got the right to vote in the U.S. in 1920. How did we get the right to vote? how did we literally get our civil rights only one way men Men gave it to us yeah um we couldn't have given it to ourselves so prior to that i could hate men all i want i couldn't literally deny every man in the entire society his civil rights but he could deny every member of my group my civil rights we both have prejudice what's the difference his is backed with legal authority and institutional control. Right. We have to have language that acknowledges that difference. It's so profound in its consequences. And, and let me just make a note, which women got access to the vote in 1920?
1: White, White women.
0: And I bet you weren't taught that in school.
1: No, they weren't so, allowed the right till the 1960s.
0: Yes, for the Voting Rights Act, which has almost been dismantled at this point. And this is why we can never relax, <laughs> uh, you know, and never uh, stop paying attention. But that leads to, I can be oppressed as a woman, and I would say I am oppressed as a woman, because patriarchy is real too. That doesn't mean I don't benefit from racism, and that doesn't mean that I don't perpetrate mm-hmm. racism. right. So
3: um, because there is a backing, that's why reverse racism doesn't exist because
0: they are on the bottom. Is that correct? Yeah, please remove that phrase from your vocabulary, everyone who's listening. There's no such thing as reverse racism.
1: And so I would love to now get into the definition of white fragility, which in the what, what my takeaway was when people that are white or white passing get defensive... And do all these things to therefore hold systemic racism in place. And I'd like to start off with talking about the good, bad binary, Robin, because I feel like that was, so, I feel like that's the big one in the people that I, um, you know, the people I'm around with. These, this idea that I'm not racist because I'm a good person.
0: So I think the most clever adaptation of the system of racism to the challenge of the civil rights movement was to turn it into this simple formula that we've talked about, individual conscious malintent across race. That's a bad person. I mean, isn't that a bad person who would intend to hurt somebody based on race? So that means that being a good person and participating in racism are mutually exclusive. Good, nice people can't be racist. And there's your defensiveness right there. Mm -hmm. Uh, We hear it as you attacking our moral character when you suggest that we've said or done something racist. If you notice, how do people defend themselves against a charge of racism? They get all their friends to say what a nice person they are. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know him. He's a really good guy. Or post a picture of your
3: childhood black friend, which I've been seeing a lot.
0: Yeah. Therefore, you can't be racist. You're a nice person. And there we go. Nobody's racist. (laughs) And yet we have racism.
1: And the crazy, you had such crazy examples of this in your book, because a lot of the responses that we say are, I'm not racist, or that I hear, you know, from elder family members, everyone is, you know, I wave wave hello to the black neighbor. You know, I have (sighs) black friends. I have a Uh, black uncle. I'm not racist. And it's like, and your example of this, and I would love for you to share it with everyone, is how ridiculous this sentiment is because white supremacists, there have been black journalists that have interviewed white supremacists. Just the idea of being around someone <laughs> doesn't mean you're not racist.
0: Yeah. The evidence white people use to certify themselves as free of racism is ridiculous. And, you know, we need to take a take a look at that evidence. Um, now, it's also really useful or revealing in that it helps us understand what does this person think racism is if this is the evidence they're using to say that they're not racist. I used to live in New York. I'm not racist. Oh, uh, so racists can't live in New York. Well, I actually know a pretty big one that comes from New York. Um, <laughs> I'm from Canada. Apparently, there's whole regions of the world that racists can't live in. Um, right. I I was on a mission to Africa. I was in the Peace Corps. I had a Black roommate in college. If you look at this, it all distills down to proximity. Mm-hmm. Apparently a racist can't tolerate being near, mm-hmm. uh, let's, let's just say Black people, Black people, or even walk down a urban street and pass by a black person. Apparently racists can't do that. If your evidence that you're not racist is that you can walk down the street of New York. You won't it, repel. it is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. But it's been really useful to me to, mm. to use it to say, okay, what do they think racism is? Oh, and then, and then the good bad binary is revealed. And yeah. so this is why I think I'm effective at talking about it or to, at you know, kind of, uh, unpacking it is because I've just heard it so many times. It's so scripted. And, yeah. and here's something for white people: trust me, people of color are rolling their eyes when you say that. You mm-hmm. think you're telling them you're down. Mm-hmm. You're not telling them that at all. Mm-hmm. Do you want to know that? Would you want to know that you're kind of making a fool of yourself, or would you not want to know? And yet, when you say hey, you know, that's not really good evidence, Uh, here's why, what what tends to happen? The person just explodes in defensiveness and starts to argue. It's just this vicious cycle.
1: All right, guys, we're so excited to tell you about Uncommon Goods. So this is basically a website that has unique, fun, and beautiful gifts. things for everyone in your life, including yourself. And honestly, it's my go-to when it's someone's birthday, when it's Father's Day, when it's especially Mother's Day, which I know has passed already. But if your mom or any woman in your life is having a birthday, they have thousands of amazing, unique gifts. So like not something basic, something thoughtful and cool. It's almost like walking into like a boutique store down your sidewalk, but online, like that's how I would describe it. it right yeah
2: i like can find things for jared's man cave and stuff like it's not just for girly items like they have baseball stuff scotch infused toothpicks think about this for their dad in your life that's they have really fun
3: tabletop games they have like beer pong with like little flicker things they have really cool stuff i was uh i got a puzzle which is very quarantining of <laughs> me.
1: But they're cool puzzles, guys. Yeah, yeah and I got candles because we're quarantining, and so you know, I gotta set the mood for myself when it's just me, myself, yeah. and I. But there's Father's the- Day and graduation wait, wait. I gotta tell is them about this. Sorry.
2: Go ahead. There's this grill set that was made from recycled golf clubs. So that kind of has like your dad's grilling <laughs> thing and his golfing thing in one. That's pretty dope.
1: Wait, that's kinda genius. So I wait, tell that. us about what you
2: got for your mom. Or yeah, you got something for your mom? the yeah. charcuterie board. So for
1: yeah, I got my mom a charcuterie board, and Father's Day is coming up. I know a lot of people are graduating right now, and so we need a place to go for unique, thoughtful gifts. So. Just so you guys know, Uncommon Goods also donates a dollar for every purchase that is given, and more than $2 million—they give more than $2 million to nonprofit organizations like Rain and the IRC, and they support good causes like paid family leave, a fair living wage, and they don't sell products made out of fur, feather, or leather. So support small businesses and local artists.
2: Wow, they're really great. Uncommon Goods, like we've said a couple times already, is the perfect place for finding a gift, especially for occasions like Father's Day. And we're going to make it a little bit cheaper for you guys to get a good gift. So go to uncommongoods.com slash get it and you'll get 10% off your purchase. That is uncommongoods.com slash get it for 10% off your next gift to you know a loved one or yourself. Do you think that there's even a way that white people
0: can vocally prove that they're not racist? No, because I don't... Okay, so I'm going to say some things. Everybody breathe. (laughs) Because I don't think any white person in this society can be not racist. I am at a point in my work where I am beginning to say, remove the claim, I'm not racist from your vocabulary. And if you're shocked, like, why would I tell you to do that? Then you have some education to do. Clearly, I'm not defining racism the way you are. So you're missing something. That's on you. Um, Every moment that I have sought, that I seek to challenge this conditioning into white supremacy, there's another loaded term, right? It's, it's actually a very descriptive term for a society that holds white people up as the norm for humanity. Mm-hmm. I, I'm mm-hmm. just a person, Naz is a particular kind of person, right? Mm-hmm. You know, just in so many ways, white people are the human ideal, right? And that message is coming constantly. It's not just one time somebody said that to you. Uh, right. your textbooks your teachers your professors your heroes your heroines god jesus yep. <laughs> mary santa claus on, on and on and yeah. on yes it's constant picture frozen picture those little girls picture any little girl of color not getting that it's better to be white right right none of us miss the message and Every time, every moment I try to push against it, it's still coming at me. This is why I'm not going to be free of it. Uh, and I can't relax and just say, okay, I'm done. I'm not affected by this message. I am. And so that's what I mean when I say you're never going to be free of racism now. You can be less racist. Uh, you know, I kind of see it as a continuum. Okay, You
3: mm-hmm.
0: can do less harm. Um not maybe every single time, but in any given moment, how am I doing? If we thought about it like that, like it's always at play. So how am I doing right now? Rather than I already know I'm always doing good. Uh, I proudly identify as a feminist. Mm-hmm. It breaks my heart that young women think that's not a good thing to identify with. Um, and I, in the same way that I think all white people internalize the idea that it's better to be white, all men know it's better to be male. No Mm -hmm. little boy misses the message. How do we, how do we train boys into performing masculinity? Don't be a pussy. Don't be a faggot. Don't be a wimp. Don't be weak. Don't be female. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: So I don't think any man is free of sexism. Some are, can I swear on this show? Yeah. Some are bigger assholes than others. Mm -hmm. Some, uh, carry their, uh, sexism more lightly and thoughtfully than others, but I don't believe any man is free of it. I'm married to a man. I love him every now and then I'm like, Ooh, look at that (laughs) assumption you just made. (laughs) (laughs) Your sexism showing that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, um, because you brought up white supremacy, Robin, this, um, the way you redefined it for me, and I like you said, I think we need to redefine it on this podcast, um, is that we're socialized in a white supremacist society because of all the things you were just saying, everything we see. And this was freeing to me because just like you say, we can now focus on how we're racist and how racism manifests as opposed to if we're racist. Yeah. So I think it's important that we define what white supremacy actually is. It was a word that I... Was scared to say. I thought white supremacy was when I think white supremacy. I think the KKK. Exactly, but what that, I is, think of totally. two yeah. that is skinheads. Yeah. That is not what white supremacy is. So can you tell us what
0: white supremacy sure. actually it, is? And I was raised also to think about it as the KKK. It includes the KKK. But it's a highly descriptive term for the society we live in, a society that holds white people up as the ideal for humanity, as the norm, as the uh, unmarked. There's nothing to, to say here. And everyone else is a certain kind of human and usually uh, less, less human. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the idea of white as equals human and everything else is kind of a subversion of that and you you know I don't consciously believe that, but that doesn't mean I haven't internalized that message deep within myself. I have lots of black friends in my life at this point. I wasn't Mm -hmm. um, raised, like most white people, I wasn't raised to have black people in my life. Most white people don't have black people in their life. So of course I I have friends who I love and I I don't sit there thinking they're less human, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean walking down the street and passing someone I don't know who's black that I don't get a moment of, fear, or I see someone on television and kind of a shocking, rather racist thought flashes through my mind. Um, And the more subtle stuff of most white people live separate from black people with no feeling at all that they're missing anything that matters. Yeah, we're geographically
1: segregated.
0: That's a really deep message. Most white people will go from cradle to grave with few, if any, authentic relationships with black people. And not only will they not feel that anything of value is missing, Mm. um, they'll measure how good their schools and neighborhoods are precisely because there aren't black people in their schools or neighborhoods. This is the more quote unquote subtle manifestation of white as ideal. Why is a white neighborhood a good neighborhood if it's segregated? Mm -hmm. Could I make a case that maybe that's not a good neighborhood? Because it's that's, yeah, that's for sure yeah. true.
1: Yeah. And this was all under you call this aversive racism, and you shared a text message exchange that I thought was really powerful between you and your friend, which I, yeah. I think would be great for you to share here because even when you brought it up as a white person, the narrative was changed by the person you were interacting with.
0: Yeah, I have a, a friend who um, was telling me about, about someone she knows who bought a house in New Orleans for only $25,000. Can you believe it? What a bargain. Right. And then immediately adds, of course, she had to buy a gun. Yeah. Okay, so I think just about anyone who heard that would go, oh, it must have been a black neighborhood. One, that's why it was $25,000. That's why she had to buy a gun. And that's actually where the emphasis of the story's on. Right. That, that's where the emotional impact of that story is. And this is kind of an example of like white solidarity, the ways that white people have these conversations where oh, we're right. always reinforcing us and them and mm-hmm. us as better than them. She didn't even have to come out and say it. We both knew what was happening in that conversation. Right. Now I pushed back um, and uh, asked her, oh, I assume the neighborhood's black And she says, yes, um, but I wouldn't pay five cents for a house in that neighborhood. Okay. And then um, I I said, well, I wasn't asking because I was, you know, looking for a home.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I'm asking because I'm writing in my book right now about how white people talk about race without talking about race. And then she immediately, immediately writes, oh, I wouldn't want you to move there. It's too far away from me. It's. She right. would
3: never oh, say that to, to yeah. a Black person. It's just so no. crazy because she it's knew so what she was saying wild. was
0: wrong. That's why she felt comfortable saying it to you. Immediately now we change it. Now, of course, she has plausible deniability because she didn't come out and say. Right, right. Um, mm. But I call that danger discourse. Mm. Kind of the way we, we reinforce these ideas indirectly.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Are these ideas in these like socialized ideas only in the U.S.? Because... The slavery was, or is, it all around the world
0: because, like, our foundation is our based foundation on it. is based
3: on slavery. Or yeah, is ours like, is, but yeah. where?
0: Uh, what countries sold enslaved Africans to us? The Brit Europe. the British. Yeah. Um, mm. They have a deep history of colonization in India. Um, th- that Western pretty much all Western cultures uh, have colonialism and some aspect of the slave trade in their histories. And in virtually all those countries, I've been to Australia, South Africa, England, Germany, on and on and on. And uh, black and brown people are at the bottom of every measure, just like they are here. Okay. So they haven't figured out systematic racism either. No, 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 no. Actually, in some ways, we talk more directly about racism in this country than they do. But everywhere I go, white people pull me aside and say, oh, you know, you're an American and racism is an American problem. We don't have racism here. And then the people of color pull me aside and say, oh my God, please talk to these white people. Please help us. Please wow. come here. <laughs> yeah, because Everything you're talking and writing about is exactly what we experience here. The history might be different. There may be nuances that we have to translate, but the outcome, enduring racial inequality that whites benefit from and yet continually deny.
1: Very interesting.
0: I I wanted to go back to
1: white supremacy for a second because there was um, a New York Times article or a study made in 2016, 2017, and I wanted to read some stats from it that um, were very telling of what white supremacy actually is. 10 richest Americans, 100% white. U.S. Congress, 90% white. U.S. governors, 96% white. People who decide which TV shows we see, 93% white. People who decide which music is produced, 95% white. You know, um, owners of men's professional football teams, 97% white. So can you explain how this doesn't necessarily mean good versus bad white people, but how white people are in charge of the media we see and how we have an unreal perspective
0: That that homogeneity alone would guarantee that um, disadvantage is going to be built into the systems for people who aren't a member of of that group. Mm -hmm. Um, They could be the nicest people, but they will necessarily set up systems that reflect their worldview and their their interests. And the example I use is if everybody sitting at the table designing a building is able-bodied, that building is going to be designed in a way that automatically, mm-hmm. without any intentionality, excludes people uh, who say use a wheelchair. Right. Um, they're, they're not consciously excluding, but they simply don't know any other reality but their own. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to add, they really weren't taught to see that anybody's perspective is missing from that table. Why isn't anybody sitting at the table with a disability that could actually make that building way more inclusive for so many people? Uh, because we were raised not to see people with disabilities as valuable to be in relationship with. Let's be honest. Do Most of us don't know people with s- serious uh, physical disabilities. We live separately with no sense of loss. It's the same around race. You talk about the
2: importance to not say things like, oh, I'm colorblind. Like, I don't see color. It doesn't matter to me. And that's kind of what we learned growing up, you know? We're You're all just equal. like, oh, we're all equal. But you say that's really bad because it talks about like everyone together, everyone's the same and there's, the focus isn't on the individual.
0: First of all, um, I would ask, what does it mean to say everybody's equal and live separate from them? Right. That um, you can be told that everybody's equal, but you're getting a very deep message on many other levels when Mm -hmm. you don't live with them. You don't know them. You haven't been taught that you need to know them when you're never given their perspectives. So. Um, there's what we're told and then there's the actual practice of our lives. Mm-hmm. Those parents who told us that, do they have any black friends? Do they have any critical awareness of their own whiteness? No. So it's a kind of like thing we say that has really no um, no meaning in the sense that what, what we're absorbing at the deeper level is much more powerful than those empty words.
1: Right. And we're taught that like, there is no loss in the absence of people of color. You know, we're taught that like a good school is a predominantly white school. Like we're taught when we're little that like self-censorship, you know, we should self-censor when it comes to race and maybe not say
0: anything instead of like recognize it and challenge it. And who does that serve? Can you think of any, any other social problem that we would say the best thing is to never speak of it? Let's never speak of suicide. Let's never speak of um, Mm. sexual assault and rape. Let's never speak of eating disorders. Why are we saying let's not speak of race or racism? Yeah. You know, can you imagine somebody saying to you, just imagine that you are the only woman on a team of 12 men. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that ever happens, but you could imagine the workplace in these male-dominated fields. You're going to have a different experience than they have. Um, there are going to be all kinds of unconscious sexist assumptions they're making, things they say, the way they talk to you, the way they respond to your ideas differently than they respond to the men's ideas. And imagine one, one day you, you, you try to bring it up. You try to bring up that you feel like you, you're definitely, you know, treated differently and are feeling these things mm-hmm. uh, as a woman in the group. And the men look at you and say, I don't see you as a woman. Mm. Well, one that's ridiculous, it's yeah. like, yes, you right. do, It's <laughs> like yeah. you do, and you better mm-hmm. because I am a woman, I'm the only one here, and I'm having a different experience than you guys are. Pay attention, like you wouldn't feel validated and affirmed.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You would be like oh. and but but we say that to black people all the time, oh, I don't even notice you're black,
3: right
0: right bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. We're noticing. We are noticing. It has been. Can I give you a quote that I just, it's one of my favorites. I think it's Pat Parker. I quote her in the book. She's a black woman. And she says, first of all, forget that I'm black. And I think what she means is stop reducing me to that. Stop only going to me to speak to that.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And second of all, don't you ever forget that I'm black. Yeah. Wow. right it, yeah. then i'm having a different experience in reality yeah. and you are and so that
1: we it, live in a system that's unfair to them and it's right. our responsibility it's not our fault that we were socialized and we live in this system but it is our responsibility to challenge it and to change it for them i a very interesting part of your book robin for me was individualism and i felt i felt a lot of feelings reading this chapter <laughs> because I grew up, you know, my parents didn't give me a dollar. I've always felt like, you know, I live in America where anyone can be what they want to be and and my parents didn't give me a dollar and I'm I'm successful now and da-da-da. And we need to talk about how that narrative is dangerous and working and is a part of white fragility because it's not helpful because I'm not recognizing that this system isn't fair to everyone.
0: Yeah. You know, if everybody was seen as an individual, then great. Let's be individuals, but not everybody is. So then it ends up becoming a privilege that we only grant to some people. Right. Right. Nobody ever says to me, I don't notice you're white. Yeah. Right. Nobody says my friend, Robin, who's white, but that has nothing to do with what I'm about to tell you. So
1: right?
0: true. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Right? So I always get to be an individual.
1: Um, It's the normal. People don't even talk about white. Like, it's not even in a book. Like you were saying, when you read teen books, they always name the color characters.
0: That's right. Um, And so two things happen. One, we always get to be individuals at the same time that we get to be just human. So we're seen as objective and, and outside of race. So, of course, we are all individuals. I, I, I couldn't possibly speak to every person's story who's reading my work, but we're also members of a social group that profoundly shapes our life. I'm going to imagine that you all recognize that as women, being women shapes your life differently than if you were men. Yeah. That being raised, you were raised differently because you're girls. And I need to say cis girls, right? Mm -hmm. Assuming that you identify as female, as women, um, you know, you have a different experience. You know, society responds to different differently to you. Walk down the toy aisle at target uh, (laughs) and um, see the differences it's so deep in the culture so we're also members of social groups and we're getting conditioned collectively everyone who walks down the toy aisle is seeing pink for girls and dolls and prettiness and beauty shops and baking you know companies Mm -hmm. and everybody on the boy aisle is seeing guns and brown and green and anger and fighting everybody right. right And nobody is untouched by those messages. Even if they have a mom that says, you can be anything you want, you know, that's not enough. It's a good message, but it's Mm -hmm. not enough to push against that, the weight of the culture. So Uh we're individuals within a culture and we have to be willing to look at how the culture shapes us um, in similar ways and stop exempting ourselves. The very fact we want to be individuals is because we live in a culture that tells us that it's valuable to be an individual.
2: Yeah, it's what we're fed. On social media, the past two weeks, of course, everything has just exploded with white people saying that we need change and that they're disgusted in the way that black people have been treated in our country. Um, and this is, and you say based on the, in the book that the majority of these people are progressives. People saying like, "Look, I put this on social media. Um, I'm, I'm not, not racist. racist. Like, I've been regramming all these things. Like, I'm not racist." Is this our way of kind of being defensive and like trying to wave our, at least showing our like um, white hat? <laughs>
0: Yeah, um, it's a few things. Uh, Yeah, it's trying to show how woke we are. Mm -hmm. It's if there's nothing about your post up until the present moment that ever indicated you had any interest whatsoever in racial equality, then I'd say it's somewhat disingenuous. Mm -hmm. Um, And. You know, certainly our black and brown friends don't want to read it. They're tired of hearing it. It's, it can be a little bit narcissistic, right? You know, our, our white friends, yes, we need to be talking to each other, um, and I don't want to blanket out of hand. Um, critique people who are doing that I I would I would need to see it but it can certainly just function as a kind of I'm covered now and um I can move on I want
1: there's
0: a there's a term floating around
1: right now Robin called performative activism something I hadn't heard of until this week and I highlighted a quote in your book about white progressives where um, you say white progressives can be the most difficult for people of color because to the degree that we think we have arrived, we'll put our energy into making sure that others seeing us as having arrived. None of our energy will go into what we need to be doing for the rest of our lives, which is engaging in ongoing self-awareness, continuing education, relationship building, and anti-racist practice. This has been a rather, I think, complex feeling because... When you have a platform, whether it's a big one or a little one, and you do genuinely want to educate yourself and feel bad, um, it's become a matter of like, do I need to be posting? Do I need to be not posting? What do I need to actually be doing? And so I'd love your thoughts on that. And then after that, secondly, um, I've been considering joining like a white um, racial injustice group. But then I was thinking to myself, I'd love to know from you, do you think that that sort of falls under your us and them? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Does, that,
0: does that make us
1: more us and them to join mm-hmm. a group?
0: That's a good question. Yeah. Okay. So performative activism is that, is that kind of very superficial acts uh, in a moment when pressure's on you and then nothing follows. So I would want to say, see what happens when the camera goes away and when the media isn't putting this in front of us. Anymore? Are you still involved and engaged? It's very easy to just, it's actually quite easy to go down to a protest. It's a little bit exciting to go down to a protest. Uh, But what are you doing in your workplace? You know, what are, are you? Are you working to get policies on the table and look at those policies? And, you know, that really hard, ongoing, sustained work, having those conversations with old Uncle Bob that you dread having them with. But, you know, somebody has to. So we should do that? (laughs) Well, (laughs) sure. This is the way I look at that is. Uncle Bob may not like it. Uncle Bob (laughs) might not even change. Mm -hmm. But for just a moment, Uncle Bob had to be held accountable for that thing he just said, that instead of what we usually do is we sit there and endure it. And Uncle Bob gets to say that stuff with no accountability. He's the one that's going to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I'm going to be in my integrity because Uncle Bob can't do that without my silence. So I'm doing it for me. I have to, right. I have to speak up and, and um, not like I'm going to fix Uncle Bob, but I'm going to be able to sleep tonight knowing that I was in my integrity. Right. And okay, we need so- to
1: practice racial humility because we also need to not think it's about us. I think a lot of people are scared to stand up for something because they think it's going to change the way people view us. And that's why a lot of people, sure. we all choose silence like all too often. But there is
0: no neutral silence. Silence is complicity. So, right. but what I, I wouldn't, I don't think it'd be strategic to say, uncle Bob, you're a racist. Maybe, I mean, it depends on you know, who he is and who you are in relation to him. I, I tend to point my finger this way towards myself and say, hey, Uncle Bob, I know I've heard that before and, I, and I've, I've even thought it myself, but you know, I've been doing some reading and some engagement and um, I've gotten a lot of new uh, insight about this. And then, and then share your insight, right? You didn't tell him he was wrong, but in a way you're teaching him through just what you have come to know. Right. Now, white groups- I actually am a a very big believer in um, us separating. For uh, certain periods of time, to work on uh, what we need to work on, that that is different. The the work of white people is different than the work of people of color. For us, it's the it's working on how we've internalized the message that we're superior. For people of color, it's how the message that they're inferior has shaped their lives. These are very different conversations, and the ultimate goal is that we come together, but. Most white people are not in very good shape. Mm-hmm. A lot of people of color dread those cross racial dialogues because white people say and do this very insensitive things and then, you know, defend themselves when they get called in. And those groups are exhausting for people of color. So when we separate and work on ourselves a little bit more, we're in better shape when we do come together. So I, I think um, it's good
3: you said something um that was a great comparison like everyone's like running to their black friend saying what do i do what should i say and you were said what if you were in your office and some random male came up to you and during the me too movement and said were you raped and then i would be like oh my god and that's kind of exactly how they feel i thought that was very powerful
0: Oh, good. Because we're asking people to share something across power. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't feel power, um, but, but that doesn't mean we don't have it and they're not aware of it. In the same way that when a man asks you that question, you're acutely aware. You, know, you may not respond that way if I asked you that, right? especially if I asked you in a sensitive way, but some man asking you that. And then imagine that you begin to tell him and he begins to ask you what you were wearing. Wow. Yeah. Right, he's asking you to open your guts and be vulnerable, and then he's going to sit back and determine whether he thinks what you shared was legitimate.
3: Totally, mm-hmm. totally. This is wow. what we
0: do to people of color. Tell me about. Yeah. Tell me about racism. Teach me about racism. Oh, I don't think that was racist. Yeah, <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's, and it's real. So obvious. It's so. Yeah. It's so insane. Well, but we all, you all recognize it, don't yeah, you? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And if we're being honest, we've done it. I've done it. I've done yeah, it. Mm-hmm, yeah, it's 100%. never too late.
2: I do think the most powerful things are when you relate it back to something that that is more relatable to us yep. white people. Yep. Like when you, fl- yeah, talking about like just Me Too movement, because as a woman, even if you haven't been raped, you can still feel that a little mm-hmm. bit more personally.
0: Yeah. I, um. whenever I can't figure out a piece of racism or I've been given some feedback that I I don't understand, I just change the roles in my head. And I imagine a man doing what I'm about to do or want to do. And then I'm usually like, Oh God, I see it. Mm -hmm. So, um, Mm -hmm. the key is to use that as a way in, not a way out. A lot Mm -hmm. of women will say, well, I experienced sexism. So, you know, it's the same or it's worse, or they use it as a way out. That's called white feminism. (laughs) We can't do that. Yeah. That's terrible.
2: We are talking about educating ourselves, but can we make this statement a little more specific? What does it mean when we say we're going to educate ourselves? Does that mean like talking more about American history, looking more into the stuff that we didn't learn in high school, like court cases, um, looking into all these situations like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor um, that haven't made it to like the mainstream media
0: as much as these have? What can let's be more specific about what sure. education means? Thank you. I mean, we really don't know our history. So uh, we don't know that where we are today comes from just decades, if not centuries of building up of advantage for white people. Um, there's really dense histories like Ibram Kendi's stamped from the beginning, which is about five inches thick, but it's fantastic. <laughs> um, well, you know, you got to be pretty motivated. Um, there's really light, quick histories um pbs has a special called race the power of an illusion it's fantastic mm. that mm. will help you with that history um uh, ava dubay uh uh 13 that's an excellent um movie if 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 you respond better to to visuals so there's ways to get that 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 are engaging Um, watch videos, listen to New York times, um, seeing white podcast. It's fantastic. And it's filled with a range of voices. Um, listen to, listen to black people who give workshops and presentations and get on black Twitter and shut up. Just get on Black Twitter and listen. <laughs> don't be weighing in on Black Twitter, but don't be trolling it. I mean, some part yeah, of me is oh. kind of nervous, but, um, you know, Black people generally talk about things uh, a little more openly when we're not around. Yeah. So um, change your life in a way that you actually do begin to build friends friendships with Black people. And then you don't even have to ask them. Just being in their lives as they begin to trust you, you'll see what they experience. You'll hear about what they experience and eventually they'll start telling you about what they experience because they trust you. Yeah, so there's lots definitely. of ways to get educated. Thank
1: you, Thank you for Thank that, you. Robin. I have um, questions. For my, I have two questions. The first one is um, centered around millennials. So we're millennials. Um, a lot of people that listen to our podcast are millennials. And in your book, you talk about how we believe in equality the most, but in a colorblind way that's not productive. And a question that people ask you a lot, Robin, is, is this younger generation less racist? And your answer is no. You wrote this book a couple years ago. So my question to you is, is that still your answer after seeing, you know, all 50 states in protests, mainly made up of people of youth and our generation? Like what what is your take on that now?
0: Uh, if you if you think about the, how many white people thought racism was ended after the civil rights movement of the of the '60s, and then how many people thought racism was ended after Obama's presidency, and then you look around to where we are now, no, I don't think uh, young people got unracist in the two years since I wrote this book. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> um, uh, there may be some of that immediate um, protesting and kind of righteous involvement, and and you know I want to both like push a little bit that we're a little less righteous about that. But of course we have to get involved. So I also don't want us not to do that. Mm-hmm. But if we get involved in ways where we get some feedback to, to back off or, you know, we need to also listen. It's a kind of following the lead of other, of, of black and Brown people. Mm-hmm. Um, so hold on. What did you ask me? Well, oh, you know, I, last year I did, um, several months of workshops for large tech companies. So, you know, most large tech companies are millennials. Young, uh, If that counts for 30 and under. Yes. Yeah. Does it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and when their colleagues of color would, would, Share their experiences of pain in those trainings. When they would just testify to their pain, the white colleagues were dumbfounded. They they, they had no idea how much pain their colleagues of color were in. You know, they're friendly, they smile, um, and and so they just assume that that means they're not racist. But there's so much more going on. Um, and here here's where we could um, imagine again. Five women in a company of a hundred men are going to be seeing and feeling so many things all day long that the men have no idea, and the men thinks everything's great because hey, we got five whole women here, you know. We're (laughs) (laughs) Um, wow. It's that kind of thing, and those white people might have been friendly, um, but they they just were completely clueless to what their experiences were. And I need to add in the cafeterias of these companies because these are some fancy companies nowadays bring your dogs to work and they feed you and yeah they got like froyo and stuff oh yeah no seriously I <laughs> yeah mean, was, was yahoo's cafeteria posh. yeah and and almost all white, next would be Asian and very few black people or Latinx people. Mm. And every day that you handed your tray to the person washing dishes, you handed it to a pair of black hands. Mm. Conscious or not, that you are absorbing that message.
1: The racial hierarchy that you talk about, like right when you were born, like the hospital room even, you know? Yes. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is white framing. Um, this to me was probably the thing that hit home the most. Um, And I want to get to jobs after Ashley and Lauren ask questions too, but I work for the Dodgers. So a quote that you wrote about Jackie Robinson um, really struck a chord within me. So Jackie Robinson and Arthur Ashe – I just started playing tennis so. <laughs> are often celebrated as the first african-americans to break the color barrier in baseball or in tennis but the way that the society tells the story depicts them as being like racially special like the subtext under this it, it really i was just like wow reading it is that it's implying that there were no black athletes before either of them that were strong enough to play with whites and you say imagine if instead the story was or the narrative or the framing is jackie Robinson." the first black man, whites allowed mm-hmm. to play major league baseball. Mm-hmm. And you you pose a lot of um, reflection questions in this part of your book, The White Framing. And I, I would love for you to share that with us and your listeners, these questions of reflection.
0: Well, it's a great example of what you you refer to the white racial frame, the way that we frame things and what it um, unconsciously reinforces. So when we celebrate these these people, let's just use Jackie Robinson. Ha- he broke the color line, and and if you think about the image you get, for me the image is he's running faster and faster and faster, and finally he breaks through this ticker literally tape. Literally, what he I did see. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He did it. Um, and so it's always an exceptional. He was an exception to his race. He finally had what it took. And of course, we're missing from all of this. You know, what what that color line is, who put it there? You know, we're just not in the equation. When Mm. we talk about Black history, what do we talk about? Slavery and Jim Crow. uh, That's their history, as if we weren't part of that. Like, who enslaved them? Right, (laughs) Uh, right. Who who, um, segregated them and enforced that? and yes. so it it takes us out of the equation always and then reduces them to exceptions and so unconsciously it's also saying the rest of them just weren't good enough or aren't good enough or don't have what it takes so mm-hmm. i don't actually recall the top of my head the questions give me one or two that you remember now and it'll set me on the reflection it it was just it
1: was just like how Everything that we've learned has been in a
0: white social frame.
1: And I don't have, I can like see if I can pull it up.
0: while I I probably, it probably looks something like this. How racially diverse was your neighborhood growing up? Right. If your neighborhood was not racially diverse, why wasn't it? And if I asked you that as a child, not now, but Mm -hmm. as a child, what would you have said? If your neighborhood wasn't racially diverse, where were they? At some point, you know, let's use Black people as an example. You know Black people exist. By five, you know that. Are mm-hmm. you watching Disney films? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, did you go to the store and get some Uncle Ben's rice? <laughs> right? Some Aunt Jemima pancake syrup? You know Black people exist, but they don't live with you. So yeah, where do why is learn? that? You're making sense of this on some level. Mm-hmm. And where are they? And what's it like where they are? What's it like over there where the Black people are? And where'd you get your information? Well, probably something like my, my uh, friend's story about needing a gun where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, were you encouraged to visit places where they were and get to know them and build friendships? I bet you you were not encouraged to do that. We'll I bet you you were out as fast openly as we can upward mobility. mobility, upward mobility. Yeah. If you, if you grew up poor, like I did an urban poor. So in my early years, I was in more integrated neighborhoods, but upward mobility would take me away. Uh, and, and you always know that if you're going to improve your life, you're going to be moving to very different neighborhoods. You know, what's a good school? What's a bad school? hmm do your parents have any energy about what kind of school you go to? Really? If everybody's equal, why does it matter what school we go to? Because we know that society's not equal if we're going to be honest about it. Um, how often have you been to a wedding that if it wasn't all white, it was pretty close? Oh, yeah. Yeah if you're married and I asked you to open up your wedding album and show me your pictures, what would I see about who's really in your life? So you had a black roommate in college. Good for you. Show me your wedding album. Yeah. Right. That's true. So just to like, I'm trying to get you to, to, to see the deeper messages Mm -hmm. that, that inform the way that we respond and the way that we live our lives. Yeah.
3: So my last question, I suppose, is like, We're going to be having children soon. How do we stop that like pink, blue, that whole sort of barrier that we put up for ourselves and our kids to have a generation that's going to not be more woke, but
0: more aware
3: of the racism? Yeah,
0: Yeah, and the way I think about the woke thing is the reason that I I work really hard not to ever let anybody say that I'm woke Mm -hmm. (laughs) or say that about myself is because um, the moment I think I'm woke, I'm basically going to think I'm finished. And th- there will be my humility. I'll never be finished. So it's just not useful for me to see myself that way. I am clear that I do less harm. I have deeper, more trusting relationships across race than I ever have. Um, and I'm very good at repairing the moments in which I do commit harm, uh, intended or not. And that, those are not small things. Those are beautiful things that are a result of doing this work. Um, To some degree, you can't fully protect your child. So imagine, even if you're like, I'm going to raise a gender-free child, Mm -hmm. right? I'm going to dress them in green. I'm not going to tell my family what what sex they got assigned, right? Well, good luck fighting your family who will go nuts that you won't tell them, right? That when you go to the McDonald's and ask for a Happy Meal, you can't get a Happy Meal unless you say boy or girl, right? So you got to do your best to always be talking about those things with them. When you read a story, you, you talk about the messages in the mm-hmm. story. Um, you know, again, you can't completely inoculate your children, but it starts with you, you know, as a feminist and, you know, I was well aware of how unfair the world was for girls long before I ever thought about how over fair it was for me as a white person. Yeah. Um, it, it's just I raised a daughter and it's just so much a part of the way I see the world that it wasn't one talk I had to have with her. Every book I chose, every discussion we had after we watched a movie, uh, what I pointed out that I noticed the toy, the differences in the toy aisles at Target. Like this was just a part of my life with her Mm -hmm. and we have to get where seeing racism is also a part of our lives and it just comes through. And so it starts with us.
1: Okay. All right. Thank you. My. Ash, did you have a question? And there are really good
0: books out there called Raising White Kids.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. That's fantastic. Oh, that's really good yeah. to know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, Naz, you go is- ahead. Okay. Um, I sort of wanted my last thoughts with you, Robin, to be, and I wish we could go. I wish I had more time with you. Obviously, everyone does. Our learning I think is right never now. done from you. Yes. Our learning is ever done, but what I will encourage everyone listening, and I'll go back and read. Please read about affirmative action. Um, but I want to ask you about what it means to be a good ally. How do we bring this up in the workplace? Um, everything you said about rules of engagement, I, I would like to end personally like on that note. So people, so people who don't know what to do right now do have a little bit of an idea of where to start.
0: So a couple of things. There is a reading guide that goes with that book that has reflection questions for the end, at the end of every chapter. Um, and if you, if you do it like a reading study group, there's tips for having the conversation. That can help you go deeper. I highly recommend Leila Sad's book, Me and White Supremacy, um, to get you involved. And as far as being an ally, I actually don't call myself an ally. I don't even call myself an anti-racist because Mm -hmm. I think that that's for uh, people of color to decide if in any given moment, I'm actually behaving in anti-racist ways. So notice a few key things. In any given moment, right? I'm not finished. Am I actually acting that way? <laughs> uh, and, and it's really for them to determine. And the example I often give, uh, and I think Ashley will appreci- appreciate this one because she likes those parallels. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Have you ever seen a man wearing a t-shirt that says feminist or this is what a feminist looks like?
2: Yeah. And yeah. I have
0: two thoughts when I see that. One is, wow, that, that was pretty brave of that guy to be wearing that t-shirt. But the second thought is, yeah, I'll be the judge of that. Exactly. Right. right. And half the time, I don't think this guy's a feminist. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. don't be telling me. I will tell you if I think you are a feminist. So, mm-hmm. so that's how I think about, about that kind of question of how to be an ally. And, and then it, there's so many good resources. You go to my website alone and there are lists and lists and lists. You know, it's 2020. It's all out there. Yeah. yeah. And what about building racial stamina? That, you know, that takes a little time. And what that means is that, yes, it's embarrassing when you step in it, you know, and oh, God, cringe. But you have to get um, stronger about that. You have to say, you know, it's personal. I just said that thing. Um, But this person's upset about it is not really personal. I represent a million people who have done this. And in some ways, they probably have, feel a little safer with me if they 're showing me how hurt they are, because most of the time they don 't tell us because it doesn 't tend to go well for them, so you just get, you get better at understanding that it 's inevitable and, and i 'm going to need to learn from this rather than shut down from mm-hmm. this and then when then you, your friends, when you start to have these trusting relationships it's just worth everything. It's worth yeah. all of those mistakes. Not, not to ever say I need to make mistakes at the cost of my f- black friends in order no. to learn. Yeah. Um, but, but you can't be so afraid glad. to make them. You can't be yes. afraid to make them. There's a difference between careful and thoughtful. If we're so careful that we're never taking risks, we're kind of useless yeah. <laughs> in the yeah. struggle anyway. Amen. But but be thoughtful. Don't just go blasting out the first thing that crosses through your head. Sometimes you can just preface it with, "Here's what I'm thinking right now," and I t- I'm totally open if I'm missing something. But you know, am I missing something? And then share it. That's very like humble and you've invited someone to say, yeah, actually you are missing this. But if you just say it like it's a fact, that's harder for someone than to kind of give you the feedback.
2: I think that kind of like full circled the entire podcast between the first question and then that question. And I, that I think is really good, helpful advice for all of us trying to start more conversations these days. I
3: felt very defensive last week. Like we were all on Zoom. We're having our conversation. I was defensive. And then I finished your book and I saw your lectures and everything. And I was like, I feel very liberated that I can just like calm down and just like admit like, yeah, obviously I was brought up off these racist tendencies. And I feel like so much better about discussing it you have no
1: idea. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's actually you talk about this in the book I it's like there's a weird part of me that's like excited. And yeah. and I and it almost feels weird to even say that like in this climate right now or I don't even want to say in this climate because it's been happening forever but like it's almost like it is freeing to know that this is what we were born into but we are responsible to challenge it and to always yeah. learn.
0: I would have never chosen to be conditioned this way, but I was conditioned this way. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that there is a more stimulating journey for you as a white person than this. Every aspect of you will be challenged and and will grow intellectually, uh, psychically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. You you couldn't pick a better journey for for growth.
1: Yeah. All right. Um, Well. Thank you so much. We're honored. Thank you so much. So enlightening. I hope everyone listening, like I hope that this helped at all. I know it definitely helped like the three of us. And I just think we need to keep going. You know, like this isn't, it's not like listen to a podcast. Okay, I'm done. Like I, the, your book is just unreal. Like, I highlighted every page, I ran out of highlighter.
2: <laughs> wow. Well, we, we're honored that you gave us your time. I mean, you have probably been the busiest woman in the country <laughs> over the past couple of weeks. And to give our audience time has been just um we can't thank you enough we don't have the words for
0: it <laughs> yeah and let me just say I mean you modeled really beautifully like you felt defensive Lauren but you moved through it and yeah. now you're at a different place Absolutely. Uh, you listened openly uh to me you you didn't argue or debate it, it, mm-hmm. it's really good modeling it's not a comfortable conversation but we mm-hmm. won't get where we need to go from a place of white comfort that's for sure so you for, more for sure. having me
1: Aww. Thank you. Well, thank but you. Wait, so I gotta much. tell
0: you—you're gonna love my, the title of my next book. Oh, oh yeah, are you right? Yeah, what is it? And oh, what it's you coming up to out right next now? summer. Okay. It's called "Niceness Is Not Courageous."
1: Oh, how well-meaning
0: white progressives uphold racism. That's,
1: That's great. Phenomenal. That's great because you have so much of that in your book, and you even talk about niceness in your book in a way. Um, but yeah, it's almost like white progressives do the most harm. On a daily basis, like I say,
0: you're not going to run into probably Richard Spencer, the you know, a neo-Nazi on a daily basis. But every day you're dealing with me and and you and the co-workers. And we're the ones that do all that unconscious stuff that some in some ways is more treacherous. You know, the gaslighting, the the indirectness, that's is maddening for people of color working in primarily white spaces. Mm -hmm. We have to you know, I'm never going to say the N word. Mm-hmm. Never. But uh, that doesn't mean in so many other ways I haven't contributed to a climate for my coworkers of color that's still been unsupportive. Exactly. And when does that book come out next summer? Next summer. <laughs> okay. Right, and where can people get- find you, Robin? I have a website, uh, robindangelo.com. Are you ever going to gonna get on
1: Instagram? I followed you on Instagram, but I feel like you're okay. not like it. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I want her to have an Instagram. <laughs>
2: this is All the right. time for Robin to get an Instagram. Yeah, know, Robin,
0: okay. get one. Oh, my God. I have to record that. I have a daughter who's a millennial, and trust <laughs> me. I, I have an appointment to go over and sit with her, and she's going to get me on Instagram. She's like, And Line. TikTok. No. So,
2: it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> okay. Oh thank Amazing. All right, thanks Robin again. Thank you're the best.
3: Right, Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I don't
1: get podcast.